Well, we want to welcome you this evening to uh, Plum Creek Chapel. Great to see everybody here, and um, we are we got some guests with us. Good to see Jude and uh, others. Uh, great to have everybody here, and uh, we're studying the book of Proverbs as a case study on how to read and understand the Bible, and uh, so we'll pick up where we left off with that in a moment, but I always like to uh, start out with just a few updates uh, on the week, and of course, this is the week after uh, Resurrection Sunday, and we had a fantastic service here at Plum Creek on Sunday, and uh, we talked about who killed Jesus, and uh, that has gotten a lot of traction both on the podcast and the videos, and just encourage you to spread the word, because it is a clear gospel message, and it's a topic that, you know, catches people's attention. We had a person from Illinois that reached out by text and said, hey, I, I listened to that podcast. You drew me in with the title. That was their comment, and so uh, it's, it's, uh, if you weren't here Sunday uh, and you'd like to catch up with a message from Easter Sunday, you can check that out at notbyworks.org. Uh, it's also available uh, at the Plum Creek website. I don't know if people realize this, but we post all the videos of the previous week only at the Plum Creek website, plumcreekchapel.org, so you can always see last week's Bible study, last week's sermon, and the Wednesday night Bible study, but at notbyworks.org, it's all archived. You can go back several years and listen to or watch videos there or listen to podcasts. So if you missed it, check it out. If you did see it, but you'd like to pass it along to somebody you think might benefit from it, you can certainly send them the link. And then yesterday, let's see, what's today? Wednesday? Yeah, yesterday, the 19th, was our standing uh, uh, podcast with Christian Underground News Network and Curtis Chamberlain and Pastor Dick Chamberlain and I talked about what we ended up calling Ophidian Obfuscating Subterfuge. And I only called it that because he called, he used those words at various points during the, during the podcast, and I kept giving him a hard time by using all these, you know, $5 words that I had to look up, you know. But anyway, uh, you'll have to listen to the podcast to kind of understand the significance of that title. And if you, like me, didn't know one or more of those three words, don't feel bad. Just look them up. <laughs> So, and then Monday was our monthly appearance on Standard for the Truth of David Fiorazzo, and he, all, he and his producer always pick the title after the fact, and they do the graphics. I just copy and paste them uh, into our uh, podcast channel and onto our website. So the title they chose happens to also be the title of the book, uh, Spirit of the Antichrist, The Gathering Cloud of Deception. Uh, but we talked about several different things, chased a few different rabbits. David's always a fantastic interviewer. encourage you to check that podcast out from just two days ago on Monday. Uh, entering into the busy travel season with Not By Works, uh, I want to encourage you to uh, be in prayer for us or those of you that are watching this video or live stream from somewhere else and might be interested. We'll be in Wisconsin April 29th through May 1st at a conference uh, at Grace Bible Church. Really looking forward to that. You can Go to our website, click the link there to register for that. It's totally free, but they're taking registrations just so they kind of make sure they have uh, enough space and all of that. And then in May, we'll be at our annual Mid-America Prophecy Conference in Tulsa. And uh, that's not too far from here. If anybody wanted to make the trek with us, uh, I'd love to have my own uh, Amen Corner there at the uh, in the audience. But uh, fantastic conference. I'll be speaking twice this year, like usual, and this year I'm speaking on uh, whose fingerprints are on the founding of America, and also the second message is Russia, Ukraine, and the New World Order. So we're going to be talking about all of that. So I encourage you to pray for us there while we're there. And we also have a conference. I haven't posted the info yet, uh, just now getting uh, some of the, the details, but in Fort Collins in May, 
Uh, it'll be just a Friday, Saturday, uh, and that's at Fort Collins Bible Church, but we'll say more about that as we get closer. All right, with that, let's uh, turn our attention to the book of Proverbs. And we'll probably, you know, depending on the, the Q&A and, and those types of things, probably finish up Proverbs uh, uh, today. And then while I'm thinking about it, and I'll mention this again at the end, but no a Bible study, midweek Bible study next week. So I'll be gone uh, next week. And um, so uh, again, in, in route to Wisconsin for that conference, which starts on Friday. And uh, so no Bible study next week, but we will resume um, the following week. So, but I'll put out a note and we'll make sure we send the reminder out. Uh, so hopefully we can get to a good stopping point here today in Proverbs, and then we'll pick up with uh, a few more lessons that we still have in the overall study of how to read and understand the Bible. So just by way of review, let's remember that the goal of Proverbs is to master daily life through the practice of wisdom. I think uh, almost everybody knows that Proverbs has a lot to say about wisdom and foolishness, and wisdom in Proverbs has to do with uh, not intellectual knowledge, but actually understanding God's perspective, following God's uh, blueprint, which of course He has given us in uh, His Word. Uh, we said wisdom is the fear of God and corresponding action. We talked about how as you go through life, uh, there are two sources of wisdom. One, of course, is the infallible Word of God, as we just said, but the other is uh, life experience. That as we run everything that happens to us, all of our experiences through the grid of Scripture, we can come out more wise. We, we learn from experience. And that's uh, a biblical principle because Proverbs itself tells us in Proverbs 15, 31, that the ear that hears the rebukes of life will abide among the wise. Uh, so the Holy Spirit uh, directs our lives. We had a great discussion last week. I got a lot of great comments uh, about last week's uh, discussion when we talked about discernment. You remember that? And uh, yeah, we are we're so thankful that Paul brought that question up, truly, because it really was edifying. And you know, this uh, ministry of Plum Creek Chapel, uh, God is using our church beyond just the four walls here in uh, Sedalia. And so I got one comment. Someone said, man, that was a keeper. You need to bookmark that and and, and come back to it from time to time because it's it was a really, they, they found it very helpful and encouraging. So we, we talked through a lot of, of definitions and the, the overarching discussion last week was about the role of the Holy Spirit. And I want to make sure that we reiterate that the Holy Spirit is alive and well today. You know, we're not um, one of these types of churches that is subjective and tries to follow emotions only and kind of let emotions trump everything else. We, we're rooted in the Word of God. You, you can be sure of that. But that doesn't mean that we're stale and intellectual and not uh, sensitive to the forgotten member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And uh, He does lead. He directs. He encourages. He guides. He assures. He seals. He does so many things that the Word of God tells us that He does. And one of those is He helps uh, put a check in our spirit if we're maybe heading the wrong direction, when we pray for wisdom, remember James says, whoever lacks wisdom, let him pray to the Lord who gives to all men liberally and without reproach. Uh, he does that through the Holy Spirit. And as we have come across uh, decisions in life that, are, uh, that need to be made, uh, choices that need to be made, the Holy Spirit will kind of help lead and guide us, often through the Word. But sometimes the decision is such that there's not a clear black and white moral 
principle or standard in Scripture. It's something that in and of itself, either one is, is okay, but we really want to know from the Lord, which way should we go? What should we do? And that's when the Holy Spirit steps in. And, and many ways that He does that, and perhaps sometime we can kind of build on this discussion by talking, spending a whole evening talking about uh, the will of God and how to know the will of God. But uh, he does that through many ways. It could, could include counsel from friends. It can, include, it can include just the Spirit bringing to our remembrance other experiences so that we go, oh yeah, this seems familiar. And I remember what happened last time. I you know, don't uh, think I want to do that again. Or it could be through principles in Scripture that we can apply in a given situation. Uh, so, of course, the easiest way to know God's will is through closed doors. Uh, I think we talked about that last week. If, if you have two choices and all of a sudden one of them goes away, well, then it's pretty clear which way the Lord is leading. Now, sometimes we're so stubborn that we really wanted choice A, the Lord closes that door, so we beat it down. And every now and then God will, will say, okay. I, I try to close that door for you, but if you really insist on going there, knock yourself out. And then usually, you know, a week later, we come back and say, I see why you closed that door, Lord. I wish I had listened to you. But generally speaking, most people recognize a closed door and say, okay, well, may not like it, but at least the decision's made. So we need to kind of recognize that this study of the, of the Proverbs and wisdom and fear of God and all these things that we're talking about, you know, are for a purpose. They're, they're, they're how we do life, and they, um, they help us uh, day by day. So, again, in essence, Proverbs is a book of practical guidance for life, um, and it gives us several general wisdom sayings that help us navigate life successfully. Now, we've talked about the fear of the Lord. I don't want to spend too much more time reviewing that, but I think it's helpful just to at least look at the definitions uh, we said that Proverbs 1-7 sort of sets, sets the direction and the overall premise of the book, which is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And uh, it's really a, a summarizing statement of the whole message. Uh, we talked about how fear is the recognition of God. It's not fear that He might hurt me, but fear that I might hurt Him. Once you really understand there is a God and you are not Him and that you see God, for who He is and His grace, mercy, and love, uh, and, by the way, His justice, righteousness, holiness, and all of His other attributes. And this Sunday, as we return to our study of Acts, we're going to be in a really awesome section as we get to chapter 9, and Saul meets the Lord on the road to Damascus. And so I'm really excited about talking about grace and all the aspects of grace that come along with that. Yeah? Praise I may hurt him. Yeah, the question is, is hurting God the same thing as grieving the Spirit? Yeah, I think it's just another way of saying the same thing. So the Spirit, of course, is God. And by the way, it's, it's good to know uh, proof texts for all of these things. If people were to say to you, well, how do you know Jesus is God? Or how do you know the Holy Spirit is God? Or how do we defend the doctrine of the Trinity? Remember I mentioned several weeks ago a guy called me while I was traveling and was just... Uh, reading me the riot act because I dared to suggest that Jesus is God. But one uh, proof text for the fact that the Holy Spirit is God is from Acts chapter 5. And uh, this is the uh, encounter of Ananias and Sapphira, who in the early days of the church, they had seen Barnabas sell some property and give the proceeds to the church because they had all things in common. 
And uh, they thought, hey, we should do that. We, we, we could get some accolades, you know, for doing that. But the problem was they were dishonest about it. They sold the property, passed it off as if they were giving it all to the church, but really they kept a portion of it for themselves. And so um, if you look in verse 3, Acts chapter 5, verse 3, Peter says to them, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? But then you skip down to verse 4, very next verse, actually. He says, you have not lied to men, but to who? God. Well, wait a minute. Did Peter make a mistake? Was he confused when he made his first statement? No, because the Holy Spirit is God. They are one and the same. Um, so, uh, so, yes, back to your question, Gary, I think when you get into the more fully developed New Testament church and the Spirit of God is leading men to write epistles that give us some more instruction about our daily walk with the Lord. That's when we learn things like Ephesians 5.18, yielding to the Spirit, uh, being filled with the Spirit, what it literally says. We, talk, we learn to uh, walk in the Spirit in Galatians 5. And then we learn not to grieve the Spirit. And to grieve the Spirit is to offend Him. Uh, and it, it even can go further than that. A person who steadfastly stiffens their neck deliberately sins against God, deliberately goes a direction that they know is not in keeping with God's Word, is uh, quenching the Spirit entirely, and you can do that. And uh, so, uh, so, yeah, I would say anytime we sin, it grieves the Spirit. And that's this is just my language here, but that's kind of the idea is that, you know, in the same way that Jesus wept over Jerusalem, over Israel, like we talked about Sunday, um, you know, it was, and you could say in a manner of speaking, that he was hurt. He was hurt that they rejected him and spat on him and, and you know, persecuted him. So anytime that we do something that our loving Heavenly Father has warned us against and, and cautioned us not to do, that's hurting him. Um, so again, we said it's taking God into account, making decisions in view of God's existence and what he has told us in his revelation. Um, and, uh, you know, we use the term revelation, uh, we talked about this way back at the beginning of this study, that God's word uh, was unveiled. The word revelation in Greek is apocalypsis. It means revelation or unveiling. And the last book of the Bible is called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. And uh, that's why it's often called the Apocalypse of John. Or, you know, you'll hear about from Revelation chapter 6, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, you know, the first four seal judgments, uh, which we talked about in our Sunday morning study. So uh, when we use the term revelation, I'm using it in that biblical sense that we need to make decisions in light of God and what he has revealed to us, namely uh, his word. So then we looked at some varieties of Proverbs. We won't rehash all of these, but we talked about some of them uh, constitute commands to be obeyed. Those can be both things that we shouldn't do and things we should do. We talked about how some Proverbs are preference in life statements. We looked at a few of those. They're, they're really fun because it's you know better this than that, and they make sense. You're like, yeah, absolutely. And then uh, principles of life that are almost always accurate. Um, Again, the Proverbs are general statements of uh, life principles that in most cases work themselves out that way. There are, of course, exceptions. You know, sometimes fools 
lived to a ripe old age and seemed to go off unchecked. And unfortunately, sometimes wise, godly people suffer the inequities of life unfairly and injustices. But in general, if you follow the wisdom that God has laid out for us in His Word, it will go well with you, you know. Um, Trust in the Lord, Proverbs says in Proverbs uh, 3, with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. It doesn't mean that it will always be a bed of roses, but, you know, certainly better than the alternative. And then this is where we uh, left off. We had talked about unchangeable truths, and these are, these are, in fact, cases where the proverb is not giving us uh, general principles that are almost always true, but these are facts that are infallible. Um, and then we'll pick up now with number five, which is that uh, Proverbs contains questions or riddles that uh, stimulate our thoughts. So let's look at, for example, Proverbs 20, uh, 24. What a great statement this is. A man's steps are of the Lord. How then can a man understand his own way? It's just a question. And it, it causes you to think, doesn't it? So what are some applications of that? A man's steps are of the Lord. How then can a man understand his own way? I think this one lends itself to a variety of personal applications. Uh, what, what do you think? Can you think of, have you come across this verse and applied it in your life at different situations? <laughs> I, I would say, I would have said that man's steps are, you know, are known to him, but the Lord is puzzled by them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because I mean, the, God's got. I mean, one, he's got to chuckle sometimes. Sure. Other times, he's got to be really grieved. Um, yeah. You know, by, you know, he, you know, because I'm sure he's, I'm sure he goes. What about? Yeah, Ken, just to make sure that people hear it, because it was pretty profound, said, if you'd have written it, and, and aren't you glad we didn't write the Bible? Um, um, it would probably have a pretty different ending. Uh, but anyway, he said, if I'd written it, I would have reversed it and said, hey, we, we understand our way, but the Lord sometimes, you know, chuckles. Um, but I think, you know, ultimately this verse, to me, speaks of God's sovereignty, right? God is sovereign. Um, and, you know, I guess one way that I've applied it uh, at times is I think about all God's incredible blessings. And, you know, like I think of, you know, my journey, starting out as a young man getting saved at age six, God providentially leading, you know, my dad had a heart attack, which was a life-changing event when I was 13 or 12, which led him to a major job change and a relocation to the south from the northeast, which got us involved in a Bible-teaching church. Not that we weren't involved in ones there, but there's quite a bit of difference between a Bible-teaching church in Connecticut and a Bible-teaching church in the Bible Belt, right? Uh, nothing against, you know, the Northeast, but there's more of them and so forth. So got involved in a large Bible-teaching church where the Spirit of God used a couple of men, the, the preacher and an associate pastor, to really influence my life. And I can still remember sitting in, you know, the pews all through uh, high school just riveted at what the pastor was saying and uh, and learning and growing and and the Lord used that time to call me into ministry while I was in high school then I you know went out got into uh, college and seminary and then 
never dreamed I'd get into academics or further my education beyond seminary, but God had other plans. And it's just, if I look at our journey and I see where we are today, and this has happened at multiple points in life, I think, wow, I, you know, I absolutely don't understand my own. I don't know how I got here. I'm, I've certainly been blessed and made mistakes along the way, but, but God's directing our path. And, you know, we see this again, and I think we might have talked about this in last week now that it's coming back to me, but in the very next chapter, verse 1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. And, um, you know, I got an email last week, not this, this week, but last week, um, from a guy asking some of these questions about, um, you know, the difference between God's permissive will and his perfect will, which I don't hold that paradigm, but I tried to explain to him kind of what, how I understand uh, the will of God. But it is one of those mysteries that, you know, we have free will, we're held accountable for our choices, we are sometimes blessed because we make wise choices, and we sometimes suffer uh, consequences when we make unwise choices. Yet somehow, overarching it all, God is sovereign. And nothing we can ever do can contravene God's sovereignty. Nothing. I don't understand that. You know, uh, Romans tells us in Romans uh, 11 that... Uh, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, as he quotes uh, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13. Who has become His counselor? Who has first given to Him, and it shall be repaid Him? In other words, God isn't reactive, you know, I mean, from His sovereignty's perspective. But yet the Bible teaches we have free will. The Bible teaches we should pray. The Bible teaches prayer changes things. It's a mystery. We don't understand how both can be true. And unfortunately, if you go to either extreme, you, you end up out of balance in your theology. So Arminians, if you've ever heard of Arminianism, but based on Je Jacobus Arminius, they camp out over here in free will. And they just that reigns supreme. And you can save yourself, you can unsave yourself, you basically do it all. Jesus just set the example. But if you go to the pendulum to the other extreme and camp out over here in Calvinism, then you, you make God the author of everything. And, and you have no choice in the matter, you're, you're just flip a coin. If you happen to be the elect, you go to heaven, and if you're not, you don't. You can have no say in the matter. If you're not elect, you couldn't believe the gospel if you wanted to. And if you are elect, you're forced to believe the gospel. You didn't do it of your own free choice. Uh, Faith is not the instrumental cause of salvation, according to a Calvinist. Calvinist, faith is the involuntary response to election, in their view. You, can, you have no choice. So we want to avoid the extremes and recognize that God teaches both. God is sovereign. God chose us before the foundation of the world. Yet he also says, whosoever will may come. So, you know, this is a pretty heavy verse, you know, uh, how then can a man understand his way? The Lord directs your steps. Anybody else have some thoughts on that or how that verse might kind of come across to you? Yeah. Lord has a path, steps for each of us, 
and at different times in different ways. Yeah. You know, we're all I mean, we're all not traveling at the same speed, with the same knowledge, the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, anybody that's been on I-25 knows we're not all traveling at the same speed. <laughs> but uh, no, you're right. I mean, it is fascinating. It's 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 a good observation. A man's steps are of the Lord. You might say each man's steps are of the Lord. And, you know, God is uh, moving simultaneously in every person's life differently. We know that the Bible says the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, seeking those whose heart is turned toward him. He's also drawing all men to him. So every unbeliever out of the seven and a half or eight billion people in the world has got God's attention because he's trying to bring him to faith. Uh, and every believer, the Spirit of God who indwells every believer, is also working on us. And that's the amazing God that we serve. So each one of us, God has a, a plan, right, uh, for our lives. Um, you know, we've talked about this before, but the famous verse that you often see quoted, uh, Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you. We know from context that's talking about the nation of Israel in the midst of a Babylonian exile, that they're not, God hasn't forsaken them, he's going to bring them into their kingdom. But whenever I teach that verse and point that out, I'm always quick to point out that there are other passages that make it clear God does have a plan for each of us, and this is one of those verses. So we know that before he formed us in the womb, he knew us, and we know God's working individually in each of our lives. It's a, it's a process. It's a journey, and that's why we want to always be gracious, too, um, and that's what I'm going to be talking about Sunday, partially, is just the role of grace and sanctification. Um, you know, we're all at different places in our walk. We all have different besetting sins, and uh, we have different attitudes that need adjusted. No one's going to be perfect this side of glory. Uh, that's just a fact. Uh, now, some denominations wrongly teach that you can achieve sinless perfection this side of glory, but that's not what I believe the Bible teaches. The flesh, we are sold under sin in the flesh, and until this flesh goes back to dust... We're going to be struggling with sin. The goal is to bring more and more of our thoughts into captivity, to uh, reflect the image of Christ within us, to live out our position in Christ. Remember, we've talked a lot about position versus practice. We are positionally righteous the moment we trust in Christ. Uh, Romans 5.1 uh, says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Justified means declared righteous. So that's once for all, done. But yet our practice doesn't always reflect our position. Sometimes we act like we're not righteous. And, of course, that's a daily occurrence. So, uh, yeah, a great, a great verse, uh, and it definitely gets us thinking. Uh, chapter 24, then, verse uh, 12, this is an interesting one. Uh, you really need to read verse 11 to understand the context. Deliver those who are drawn toward death and hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. I've used this verse a lot on Sanctity of Life Sunday or speaking at Sanctity of Life uh, fundraisers and things uh, in reference to abortion. But notice he goes on, If you say, quote, Surely we did not know this, end quote, does not he who weighs the hearts consider it? He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And a third question, and will he not render to each man according to his deeds? In other words, how often do you find yourself having conversations with yourself trying to justify your actions, right? 
that's fine if that makes you feel better, but God knows. God is always a step ahead of you. And, um, you know, you can try to, you know, it's kind of one of those things like who are you trying to convince, you know. Um, so, again, it just really makes you think. And this one in particular really reminds us of the premise, which is, you know, there is a God and we need to take God into account in everything that we do. Uh, one more, uh, chapter 30, verse 4, all of this under the heading of questions or riddles that stimulate thought. Uh, this is a, a, a proverb of Agur. Who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name, if you know? I mean, it, that, that's like, that's a wow verse for sure. And of course, the eternal sonship of Christ is clearly taught in Scripture, even though some theologians suggest Jesus became the Son at the Incarnation. That is patently false, and it's a, really a standard of orthodoxy, I believe, um, that you, know, you understand that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. And this is one of those places where the Bible alludes to that. It's, not, it's primarily taught in the New Testament, because of course the Incarnation, uh, the great Emmanuel, God with us, the whole life and ministry of Christ, uh, putting on human flesh. But the Old Testament, it's, it's there too if you look. And uh, you see it in Psalm 2, which I've talked a lot about recently, and one of those great passages that exposes the conspiracy, the grand conspiracy, where Satan is conspiring with human leaders to try to overtake God and His anointed. And he goes on to say, Today I have begotten you, meaning you have become my king forever. Uh, so, uh, yeah, this is a powerful verse. And it's just sometimes we need to stop, when we're, especially when we're facing tough circumstances. And it's good to read this verse and think, you know what? Who made the sun rise? You know? Who made the sun set? Who holds back the oceans? Who, you know, creates gravity? Who feeds the birds? You know, Jesus said something similar in the uh, Sermon on the Mount when he said, you know, these uh, sparrows, uh, let me find it so I can quote it uh, accurately. Jesus' words, certainly he put it better than I could. But he talks about worry in chapter 6. And he says, uh, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And listen, look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? I mean, so God is much bigger than our little problems, and that's a great verse that stimulates thought and encouragement. Okay, well, let's move on to the literary form. Uh, and this, I think, is, is kind of more instructional, but it really helps us sometimes understand a proverb if we look for these characteristics. Uh, so there are basically four types of parallelism in uh, proverbs. The most common, I don't even know if it's the most common. I haven't actually looked up what there are more of, but the first two here, synonymous parallelism and antithetical parallelism, are what you see most frequently between the two. 
So synonymous parallelism, remember most of Proverbs are couplets, not all. Some of them are prose, very few, but some, some of them are. But they're couplets, two lines. In synonymous parallelism, the terms or units of thought in one line are paralleled by similar terms or units of thought in the second line. So uh, right off the bat, if we look at chapter 1, verse 2, um, to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding. It's just repeating the same thing. Knowing and perceiving are synonyms. Wisdom and instruction are synonymous with understanding. Uh, chapter 2, verse 11. Uh, discretion will pres preserve you. Understanding will keep you. Again, discretion is synonymous with understanding. Preservation and keeping you, same thing. Uh, you see this a lot, um, and it's typically indicated by an and. Let's see if I can find another one here. Chapter 5, verse 3, talking about the perils of adultery. For the lips of an immoral woman drip honey, and her mouth is smoother than oil. Just two ways of saying the same thing. Um, the ant, go to the ant who provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. Again, similar principle. Antithetical parallelism is where one line is the opposite of or contrast with the other. Uh, and most of the verses in chapters 10 to 15 are antithetical, but it's still making a single point. It's just coming at it from two opposite ways. So let's look at a few of those. Uh, chapter 10, verse 1, uh, a wise son makes a glad father, but that's, that's a telltale sign that you're probably dealing with antithetical parallelism. A foolish son is the grief of his mother. So, I mean, same thing as be wise, be smart, behave. <laughs> um, and then uh, let's just look at a few more. He who has slack hand becomes poor, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Verse 4. Um, Verse 15, here's one that doesn't have the word but, but it's still antithetical. The rich man's wealth is a strong city. The destruction of the poor is their poverty. The labor of the righteous leads to life. The wages of the wicked to sin. He who keeps instruction is in the way of life, but he who refuses correction goes astray. So again and again, it's just antithetical uh, literary form here. And then if we go... Uh, so the next one, we've got emblematic parallelism, where one line expands upon or illumines the other by simile or uh, metaphor. So 10.26, as vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the lazy man to those who send him. So clearly the, the first part there is a uh, metaphor, uh, vinegar to the teeth, smoke to the eyes, those are things we can understand. Um, how frustrating that would be. Uh, you've ever been at a campfire or cooking at the grill, and no matter where you stand, it seems like the wind changes, and you know, your eyes are watering, and the burgers are getting burned. And um, so, you know, the, when you send a lazy man, uh, so is the lazy man to those who send him. When you send a lazy man to do something, it can be really frustrating. You can't count on it. You know? can't count on the job being done. 25. Another one that I wrote down here, 2512. Oops. Like an 
oh, we looked at this one in terms of the humorous aspect. Like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a, no, this is different, is a wise rebuker to an obedient ear. What does that mean? When you give someone good counsel and rebuke them and they hear it and they're teachable and they take it to heart, what a beautiful picture that is. It improves their look, right? It's like now they've got a beautiful gold ornament to them. Uh, verse 23, the north wind brings forth rain and a backbiting tongue and angry countenance. You know, we know a little bit about rain, about wind here, don't we? So uh, emblematic parallelism. And then synthetic parallelism is where the second line simply continues the thought of the first line. It's, it's prose, basically. Um, sometimes the second line gives the result of the first line. Uh, for example, Proverbs 16.3. Commit your works to the Lord and your thoughts will be established. So that's not, you know... Uh, uh, synonymous it's not antithetical it's just basically almost like one sentence but it's put down as a couplet and so we call this synthetic parallelism commit your works to the Lord and your thoughts will be established another way of saying that is if you keep God in mind in all things then he's going to you know uh, take every thought captive uh, chapter 3 verse 6 we just looked at this, or just mentioned this one. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. Similar principle to the overarching theme. But other times, the second line describes something, describes something in the first line. Chapter 6, verse 12. A worthless person, a wicked man, walks with a perverse mouth. In other words, if you're perverse, you're wicked. Uh, chapter 15, verse 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. So, chapter or the first part of that couplet talks about the eyes of the Lord. The second line describes that. I, what about the eyes of the Lord? Well, they're keeping watch on the evil and the good. So, just kind of helpful to think through... Uh, this you know type of thing because especially if you come across a proverb and you're thinking you know what uh, what does this mean well ask yourself well what's what's going on here literarily and it might help provide some instruction any thoughts or questions about literary form all right we want to move on to how to read proverbs and how to apply proverbs and then we'll be uh, wrapping up so uh, remember that the principles in this book are not intended to be taken as universal guarantees. Rather, they are general life principles that are usually but not always true. First and foremost, we started with that. We've mentioned it a few times over the last couple of weeks, and we want to make sure that's at the top of the list as you're reading it. Number two, each saying should be considered individually and meditated upon. You, know, you read an epistle... You'll read paragraphs and even you know, whole sections at a time because they're all making the same point, building an argument. Epist epistles, the letters, you know, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, so forth, they are like legal briefs, making an argument. But Proverbs, as we've said, are choice little nuggets that should be savored, and so you need to read them individually. 
read the book with imagination and a sense of humor. Uh, some illustrations paint a humorous picture. I can't remember if we uh, touched on this one earlier. 2614. Uh, yeah, as a door turns on its hinges, so does the lazy teenager, I mean man, on his bed, right? Um, that's pretty funny. I've actually used that verse. Uh, but, uh, you know, you, that, <laughs> well, I have. Uh, the door turning on the hinges, you know. And, and look, we've all done it. You're just exhausted. You're tired. The alarm clock goes off. Snooze, and what do you do? You turn back over. It goes off again, snooze, and you turn over again, and you're just turning over and over in your bed like a door on its hinges, right? Um, so um, there's another one. I can't remember if I'm quoting it correctly, but uh, something like, like a bone out of joint is a neighbor who blesses his, is, a, is one who blesses his neighbor with a loud noise in the morning or something. I yeah, that, yeah, that one can come in handy too. <laughs> That one could definitely uh, come in handy. Um, so try to visualize the real-life situation that the proverb is addressing. And, you know, when you're, next time you're thinking about sleeping in a little too long, you'll think about that door, you know, and uh, maybe think, think twice. Uh, read the book topically. Since each chapter can contain principles from various life, life subjects, seek out principles from multiple sections of the book at the same time. So normally, in this study on how to read and understand the Bible, we've said context is king, you know, look at the surrounding passages. That's not necessarily true with Proverbs because it's not organized thematically. Certain sections are, there might be a few Proverbs in a row that are on a subject, like chapter 5, for example, is that way, but... Um, but generally, you want to look at the themes. And so at the end, I'm going to give you just a few examples of themes in Proverbs, but there are many more. And a good study would be to uh, kind of, as you read through Proverbs, every time you come across a particular topic that's addressed, make a note of it and write the verse under it. And then over time, you might have 10 different topics that seem to rise to the fore. Obviously, application is the key to any time we study the Bible. Going way back to our beginning of this series, we talked about the five steps in the process of Bible study. The fifth step is to apply it to your life because the goal of Bible study is a changed life. So how do we apply Proverbs? Well, apply the principles of Proverbs by validating the truth from other parts of Scripture. Always a great idea. Compare Scripture with Scripture. That's step two in the five-step process. Remember, start with a verse expand the focus and compare other verses of scripture step three write down your conclusions step four use those conclusions to validate and invalidate truth claims from outside the bible and then step five apply it personally to your own life so uh, as you're reading these principles you can often think of historical narratives in scripture where you know it was acted out and, and, and illustrated uh, or even in some cases new testament truth that repeats the principle. The New Testament often quotes Proverbs. Always bring the application back around to the issue of trusting God in all of life's circumstances. In other words, the goal, as we said, is to make wise choices, to gain wisdom, to navigate life successfully. And you do that by seeking God, remembering there is a God uh, and you are not Him. Ultimately, that's the message of Proverbs. 
The principles in Proverbs make excellent cross-references when studying other biblical passages. So it goes the opposite direction. You know, you're studying something, and often a proverb will come to mind, and you can uh, kind of you know, cross-reference and link back to it. Uh, as we've said many times, uh, remember, life is a great teacher. Life teaches us much about God. Uh, learn to use your own new Proverbs as illustrations of divine truth. So those are just some principles of applying Proverbs. Two of the key verses that we've come back to again and again, Proverbs 15, 31, The ear that hears the rebukes of life will abide among the wise. And Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. So the words of Tom Constable, who I've quoted a couple of times in this uh, study on Proverbs, The wise person is one who takes God into account. He realizes his own limitations and his need for divine guidance. He listens to and applies what God has revealed to his own life. The foolish person believes he does not need God's help. He closes his ears and his mind to God's revelation. He goes his own way. Uh, the wise person becomes a success eventually, while the fool suffers destruction. Remember, twice in Proverbs 14.12 and 16.25, Proverbs says, the, uh, the way of a fool is right in his own ways, but in the end it leads to destruction. Right? Uh, so here's just some themes uh, to think about. Uh, wealth is one that comes up very often. And these are not comprehensive lists, by the way. Uh, also, work. Um, imagine that. So, you know, socialism really is anti-biblical. <laughs> Um, laziness, we just talked about one of those, poverty, and then I think probably one of the biggest, I haven't done the math, uh, you know, comprehensively, but there are resources out there that uh, have done this, but that would be speech, because as James uh, tells us, we should be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because, you know, the tongue is... You know, uh, uh, what does James call it? Uh, hard to be tamed. What is it? Fiery evil. Fiery evil, yeah. It cannot be tamed. And so that gets us in trouble uh, more often than not, doesn't it? So a lot of Proverbs talk about speech. So any questions or comments? So we're That's the end of the study on Proverbs, so it's a good stopping point. We've got about 10 minutes here to... Just uh, reflect on some of this or anything else that's been on your mind if you want to ask questions. Was by God's design Proverbs placed in the Bible where it sits? It might have been a good idea to have it earlier. Well, he said, was God's design uh, to put Proverbs in the Bible where it now sits? Well, the compilation of our English Bibles is an interesting study and in my eight-part video series how we got our Bible I kind of uh, talk about that um, the the structure of the Old Testament was pretty well in place before the end of the BC age um, and but we have to remember that until really until the printing press so what was that 1500 something like that when was that Gutenberg and anyway uh, Biblical truth was largely um, 
passed down orally, and it was certainly true of the Hebrew children. So these Proverbs are a collection of wisdom sayings, mostly from Solomon, that you know, weren't necessarily what they were reading in a book the way we are. They were hearing them, their, children, their parents were passing them on to children and so forth, and they were applying them. Um, but yeah, I think God did, just in the same way that he superintended over the uh, establishment of the canon by helping the church discover what he had inspired. Again, the church didn't decide that church discovered it. God decided it. I think God superintended over the, the uh, structure of the Bible today. But, you know, you don't have to read from Genesis to Revelation. You know, you can read from Revelation to Genesis. In fact, in our current culture, that might be a good place to start. Um, somebody else? Good question. Do you see how I kind of skirted the answer there a little bit? Didn't really get, I gave you a non-answer answer. Uh, first, Judy, yeah. Does Jesus quote Proverbs? I think he does. I I don't know why I'm looking straight to the Gospels like a verse on the page is going to pop up with a red letter proverb or something. Uh, let me think. I probably should know this. I'm going to be embarrassed uh, later when I look it up. But I'm pretty sure he does. Uh, pretty sure he does. Good question. Yeah, Paul. You know, this doesn't exactly flow with Proverbs, maybe it does, but, but you did touch upon free will mm -hmm. and um, uh, sovereignty. Sovereignty. Uh, and I'm going to throw in a couple other ones. Uh, the depravity of man, mm -hmm. his natural uh, nature. Mm -hmm. And um, can you talk a little bit about that in Context with John 6, where Jesus says, um, No one will come to me unless the Father draws him. Mm -hmm. And um, I am the bread of life, and he who eats of this bread, I mean. Yeah, so uh, those are two different things, but John 6 is that awesome chapter on belief. A whole book of John is about belief, but he uses eating the bread and drinking the wine as metaphors for belief. That's very clear from the context. Um, I'm going to see if I can call up here and quickly uh, project it on the live stream as well, a, a chart that I think will help provide some clarity as I answer the question. Um, let's see here. I'll find it first. I, I keep coming back to the chicken and the egg. Yeah. What happens first? So the question is about sovereignty and free will, and you threw in a few other uh, questions that relate to the overarching Calvinism uh, question of Calvinism. So we have a five-part streaming video series on what is Calvinism and is it biblical. And um, so I want to address it from the aspect of irresistible grace. So Calvinism, uh, of course, is named for its founder, John Calvin, but really the modern theological uh, you know, issue of Calvinism kind of stems from the Synod of Dort, where they kind of came up with these five principles that those who followed Calvin began to uh, 
hold to and preach and teach and look as a standard of their theology. So that's why you'll hear people today call it, you know, a five-point Calvinist or um, so forth and so on. So, or two, three-point or four-point. Now, to a Calvinist, a five-point, I mean, a four-point Calvinist is an Arminian. I mean, they don't have a scale. You're either all or none. You either you either accept their system in total or you're nothing. But uh, what happened? And let me see if I can give me just a second here to call this up. Um, okay, good. So you guys will see this, and it'll take me just a second to make sure our live streamers are uh, seeing it here. Perfect. So they should be seeing it too. So Calvinism, and I know we've only got about eight minutes left, but let me just do a crash course. So the, Cal the five points of Calvinism are easily remembered by the uh, acronym TULIP, like the flower. Total depravity, the U is unconditional election, limited atonement, number four is irresistible grace, the I, and number five is uh, perseverance of the saints. So the question you're asking about from John 6, if I, Jesus said, and I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to me, relates to irresistible grace. And Calvinists will point to that verse and say that you cannot reject Christ even if you want it. it he, that by drawing, they mean drag. And so let's take a look at that. So these are some famous Calvinists and what they uh, teach. The inward call of God is as powerful and effective as his call to create the world. God did not invite the world into existence. By his divine mandate, he called it out. Let there be light, and there was light. It could not have been otherwise. The light had to begin to shine. God, could Lazarus have stayed in the tomb when Jesus called him out? Jesus cried, Lazarus, come forth. When God creates, he exercises a power that only God has. He alone has the power to bring something out of nothing and life out of death. R.C. Sproul was quite the orator, and he made great illustrations, but he's just flat wrong. He's not wrong anymore because he's with the Lord. So he agrees with me now, uh, but he uh, he's absolutely wrong, and he doesn't really defend his view uh, biblically. So he defines it here, irresistible grace refers to a call of God that by his sovereign power and authority brings about his designed and ordained effect or result. Rain Grudem says irresistible grace refers to a kind of summons from the king of the universe, and it has such power that it brings about the response, brings about the response that it asks for in people's hearts. It is an act of God that guarantees a response. So everybody God calls will is guaranteed to respond in faith because they don't have a choice. MacArthur says, because of human depravity, there is nothing in a fallen reprobate sinner that is capable of responding in faith. Did you know that it is impossible for you to believe the gospel? That's what Sproul says. If you're not elect, it's completely impossible. If you're elect, God will do it for you. Again, faith is not the instrumental cause of salvation, whereas we believe it is. 160 times the Bible teaches, how do you get eternal life? By believing the gospel. But they turn belief into passive, and, and, and you, you know, it's almost like something within you believes for you, but you had no choice. It's like you're walking along, God regenerates you. They believe regeneration precedes faith, so you're regenerated. And then all of a sudden you go, boo, I believe the gospel. And you didn't, you didn't plan it. You didn't think it. It wasn't volitional. It wasn't intentional. It just happened. Faith is the involuntary, this is their words, the involuntary response to regeneration. We believe faith, the Bible teaches, is the instrumental 
cause of regeneration. Big difference. MacArthur goes on, irresistible grace includes the means of receiving the gift of salvation as well as the gift itself. Sovereign election will result in what God determines. All whom the Father calls to himself uh, will come. So where do we, where do we see that? Um, I mean, do we, can they prove that scripturally? Let's go to that verse you just mentioned. Um, if I can find it. Yeah, John 6, 44. I'm glad you asked, right? Um, uh, no one can come to the Father unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, the word draw here is the word elkuo. It means to draw or attract. Actually, helkuo, that's what that little mark above the epsilon there is. Uh, helkuo, to draw or attract. It's the exact same word that is used in John 12, 32, where Jesus says, If I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Draw who? All men. All men. So if draw, as they claim here, means drag, irresistibly, you can't refuse it, then how do you explain Jesus using the same word when he says all men? Does that mean everybody on earth is saved? I mean, that's patently not true. There's sheep and goats at the end of the age. Um, so this is where Calvinists have to play with the plain meaning of the text. And so here they would say, to support their theological conclusion of John 6, 44, that no one can come to the Father unless the Father who sent me drags him. They say, oh, well, here all men must mean some men, only the elect, all elect men. So here's how they translate this verse. If I be lifted up from the earth, I will drag all those who are elect to myself. They have no choice. Uh, but again, this is contrary uh, to Scripture. All men does not mean some men. And in John 2, it's pretty indisputable. Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. And he had no need that anyone should testify of him, for he knew what was in man. So does Jesus only know what is in the hearts of some men, the elect? Or does he know what's in the heart of every man on planet Earth? Every man. All men means all men. First um, Timothy 2, 4. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men, same phrase, to be saved. Not some men, all men. So God absolutely issues a bona fide call to all men. He wants every person on earth to be saved, but not everyone will believe the gospel. Everyone can uh, believe the gospel. We see several examples of this. Uh, let me give you a couple other verses. Uh, for to this end we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of what? All men. And let's see. We are justified freely by His grace. That's how we get saved. Um, the Bible ends with this great uh, evangelistic appeal. Whosoever will, let him come drink of the water of life freely. Anyone can come. And that's what John 6, 44 is saying. That... Uh, you know, God is drawing men to himself. But what's the one and only condition that every single human being ever born on earth has to meet to be saved? Faith. You've got to accept the gift. A forced gift is no gift at all. If I'm offering you a gift, Paul, and I say, here's a gift, and you say, I don't want it, and I say, no, you've got to have it, and I cram it down your throat, <laughs> is that really a gift? <laughs> No, a gift by definition has to be freely offered and freely received. And we are saved by grace through faith, that not of ourselves, it's a gift 
of God. So I don't uh, have any problem with John 6, 44 when you understand it in context. It does not mean that God's grace is irresistible. God's grace is very much uh, resistible. Um, let me look at a few more examples. We've talked about this one in, yeah, one sec. We talked about this one in Matthew, uh, in the, in Matthew 23, right before the uh, Olivet Discourse. What did Jesus say to Israel? How often I wanted to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. I mean, wait, I thought you don't have a choice. No, no, you do have a choice. Uh, John 5, you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I mean, it couldn't be clearer. Uh, what about what Agrippa said to Paul? You almost persuaded me to become a Christian. I mean, if Calvinists were right, what Agrippa should have said is, it's too bad I'm not elect. But he didn't say that. He said, you almost persuaded me uh, to become a Christian. Stephen, in that famous sermon we just looked at a few weeks ago, rebuked the unbelieving non-Christian Jewish leaders when he said, you always resist the Holy Spirit. So you can resist the Holy Spirit or you can accept the offer of eternal life. Love always works persuasively but never coercively. Yeah. Matt. Yeah. Right. Yeah, the comment was the whole metaphor in John 6 of, you know, eating the bread, drinking the cup, all of that is, is implies choice. You know, you, you have to choose to take the bread and eat it. You, no one shoves it down your throat. And that's why one of the simplest statements of the gospel in all the Bible is John 6, 47. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. So faith is a choice. We either believe the gospel or we reject the gospel. And the moment you believe the gospel, in that instant, you become born again. Yeah. It is, yep. Right, yeah. Yeah. So, no, that's, let me, he said, John, the purpose statement in John, the only gospel, by the way, that gives us a purpose statement, is John uh, 21, where is it, 20? 31. It's, uh, oh, it is, yeah, John, I mean, no wonder, I thought it was John 20, 31, but uh, I was in Luke. Yeah, the purpose statement Jesus, that John himself gives us uh, he says, Truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples which are not written in this book, but these, the ones in John's Gospel, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. So, uh, you know, to me, I don't, I mean no disrespect to my Calvinist friends. I just think they're wrong on this. And I'm not in any way over here in the Arminian camp saying that we save ourselves, that you know, we do it all, we, you know, blah, blah, blah. I think God does, the Bible does teach election. But I think it teaches free will, as these verses just show. And we just have to be comfortable with the tension. Calvinists are not comfortable. They want to dot all their I's, cross all their T's, and say, I've got it figured out. It all fits into this nice little five-point system. But you mentioned total depravity. I won't take the time to go into that. But total depravity, they believe, is total inability in keeping with their system. So... 
they don't just believe all man is a sinner, but all man is utterly and totally incapable of believing the gospel. Their, their mantra is, dead men can't believe. Well, what does dead mean? And I, I talk about this in this uh, series, but dead just means separate. And I give several examples of that in the first part of this video series. Uh, when, when the Bible says in Ephesians 2.1, we were born dead in our trespasses and sin, it doesn't mean we're born incapable of believing the gospel in our trespasses and sins. It just means we're dead. We're separated from God. But God has made a way for us to bridge that gap. What is that way? Faith. Faith alone and Christ alone. And anyone who will believe the gospel can be saved. Now, when all is said and done and time shall be no more and this old earth constrained by sin is destroyed and we're in the new heavens and the new earth, will there be anybody in heaven that's not elect? Absolutely not. Will there be any elect people in hell? Absolutely not. But we don't live in the realm of the eternal. We live right here. And according to the testimony of Scripture, anyone can come to faith in Christ. And we must hold on to that. Yeah. How did the Calvinists like John MacArthur know they were elect? Well, that's a good question. And that, the question is, how does a Calvinist, and he mentioned such as John MacArthur, uh, know they're uh, elect? Well, that gets into the fifth point of Calvinism, perseverance, because they're teaching, since God does it all, you know, you're completely incapable of doing anything. Uh, salvation is completely unconditional. There are no conditions, certainly not faith. That's not a condition, because that's a result, not a condition. Uh, Christ, the L, limited atonement, Christ only died for the elect, even though 1 John 2, 2 says he died for the sins of the whole world. They say, world of the elect. So... You get to irresistible grace, it all flows together. The, you know, you're totally incapable of believing. Yet there are no conditions that you could ever meet. Uh, Christ only died for those that are elect because you know, it's the, His death that actually saves you, not your faith. Um, uh, irresistible, once He calls you, you have no choice in the matter. And then the P, which ties it all together, is that because it's all God, Every believer will persevere in good works, and any believer who ends up not doing good works for any unspecified length of time is proven to be non-elect. So they don't say, you lost your salvation. They just say, well, you never really had it, right? And so what, when I've asked you know, people that hold that view, uh, you know, well, because they would say if you deny the faith at the end of your life, you weren't saved. You're in hell, you, and you die, you go to hell. What does the Bible say? 1 Timothy 2.12 uh, if, if, uh, Even if we are faithless, meaning no faith, the Greek word is ah, negative, no, pistis, faith. God is faithful and He cannot deny Himself because we're a child of God. So even if we deny the faith, we're still in heaven according to Scripture. But they say if you deny your faith, you go to hell. And they don't say you lose it. That's what Arminians would say. Calvinists just say, oh, you never really had it. right? You proved yourself to be non-elect. So even R.C. Sproul uh, has been widely uh, uh, quoted as saying uh, that according to his theology, if he were deny, to deny the faith on his deathbed, it would prove he wasn't saved. So he's only, he said, I can only be 99% sure that I'm saved because there's a 1% chance that maybe I am not elect. Well, I'm not, 99% assurance is not good enough for me, right? Yeah. So where does sharing the gospel fit in for them? Well, for some Calvinists, they are soul winners. You know, they do like to, um, you know, spread the gospel. They just say it differently. Like, you'll never hear a Calvinist say to a person who they're witnessing to, God loves you and sent his son to die for you. They will never say that. And they don't think you should say that. 
Because in their theology, they don't know if Jesus died for that person. So what they'll say is, you know, you, you know, if you'll believe in Jesus, you'll be saved, and then that's kind of a test to see if they're elect. So there are Calvinists that are soul winners, but they have a different theological basis behind it. Someone else had a hand over here, I thought? No? Or over here? So we're over time, but I mean, thanks for letting me extend a little bit and ask that question. And maybe in the future we can do a more comprehensive study because it is an important subject that comes up all the time. And uh, Calvinists uh, definitely are passionate about their view. I'm not, you know, personally criticizing them. I think they love the Lord and they, they love His Word. I think they just have a system that really, again, only goes back a few hundred years, but it, it rules the day. And I think if they step back and look at Scripture objectively, they would find it doesn't hold up. It just doesn't hold up. So. All right. Well, thank you, guys. We will see you uh, on Sunday.